Well, if I answer the question, then the person who asked the question won't be in here, so I won't answer it. We'll do like Jay Adams used to do, and that is he would begin his session, and then when people started walking in late, he'd just stop and stare at them, you know, and then he'd crack some joke, you know. <laughs> okay. We waited for you, Lorraine. Since Dr. Carson didn't answer the question, let me let me just briefly talk to it. Hopefully, the individual who wanted to know the information can. Uh, if they don't get it answered, maybe they'll talk to us a little bit later. The question is, has there been extensive research linking the noetic effect of sin and dementia? Recommended resource. And um, on the back it says, what school or schooling or training would be required in order to conduct further research? The noetic effect of sin is, uh, is the spiritual or theological uh, implications of the damage of sin in man uh, has to do with total depravity, kind of thinking what what are the effects of sin. So it's it's on the thought processes. Dementia, dementia is more of a medical, from my understanding, I'm not a doctor, from my understanding, um, is more of a medical condition in which the person's perceptions are skewed by by their body's inability to process that perception correctly. So when my mom had Alzheimer's, I was always her twin brother, Mike. Um, she was consistent in that. My sister, she was very upset with because she thought my sister had done something that was, you know, had cheated her. My sister would never do that. Um, but it was a it was a misperception of of reality. The noetic effect of sin is just the simple reality that we're not always able to process life correctly. We can make observations, but we don't always come to the right conclusion. So if you were the answer to the first question is no. Not to my knowledge, there hasn't been any extensive um, research done linking the noetic effect of sin with dementia. And I would recommend resources, um, Blame It on the Brain by Ed Welch or Good Mood, Bad Mood by Dr. Hodges or the Counselor's Desk Reference by, by Charlie Hodges as well. Uh, those would be books on the implications of, you know, just uh, brain damage and, and uh, those kind of related issues. What kind of training would you need? You would need theological training as well as medical training. <laughs> that would be the bottom line to it. And so I hope that kind of answers the person's question. We're counseling difficult, hard issues during this hour, and this is a two-hour lecture, which I really rushed to get it in in two hours. So I'm really going to have to talk real fast, okay? <laughs> All right. So counseling, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's three pages. Come on, you know. Yeah, I'm not going to read it. You go to sleep when I read one paragraph, okay? And <laughs> not going to read to you three pages. But I will read to you some of it. What I want you to do, what I want you to do is I'm trying to put a face to an image. This is not really Rex, okay? But I want you to kind of think about an individual 
I want you, when you're listening and you're kind of reading along with me, underline key statements that you hear, things that you think are important. Now, we're thinking through what, what's driving Rex's heart, what, what is he treasuring, what's going on here. Rex, not his real name, okay, to protect the guilty, all right. 37 years old, married for 16 years to Selena with two children, 14 and 12. The counselor and his wife met with Rex and his wife, Selena. When he first called for an appointment, he seemed desperate to to seek counseling immediately and became impatient when he had to wait two days for the counselor's schedule to clear. Rex had worked for a parachurch organization for the past 15 years and was outwardly successful in his administrative position. In that first meeting, he began his story by saying that as recent as one week ago, he had came under deep conviction about his hidden lifestyle and was driven to confess by a desire to have his conscience clear before God. He said, I want to confess my sin and whatever it takes for me to be cleared from my guilt. He sounded sincere and genuine, but not as emotional as might be expected. What do I need to know to be of help, the counselor asked. Rex was quite familiar with the biblical counseling and seemed very intent on making sure the counselor knew that he had already confessed and repented. Without any further questions, he explained that from the first months of his marriage, he had been unfaithful to his wife. It was never a romantic love affair with any of these women. He told of having countless sexual encounters throughout his marriage. I know it was wrong, but it was not a full-blown adulterous affair. I never encountered the same woman twice. Um, For the past 15 years, he had regular encounters for sex, but never sought to have a romantic relationship with any of the women. Skipping down a sentence, he described himself as a good man with integrity, hardworking, Did I hear a smirk on that? (laughs) He uh, was a good man and a man of integrity, successful in his position at the organization, well-respected, industrious, honest, dependable, good husband, good father, had no vices except for this one area. And he had the counselor convinced at first that he was indeed that rare individual that had one vice and he had reached the point where he had stopped. He spoke of time after time when he would vow to himself and God that he would never commit, you know, go back to the sexual sin. He said that once he had gone as long as six months before returning. He described it as a compelling desire that just had to be satisfied, and often this compelling desire would overtake him, and he would indulge. He had begged God to remove the desire, but God did not do so. He explained that his wife was always very compliant, except she was not sexually attractive to him. Selena, on the other hand, was a very innocent young woman. Uh, When they married, she had not dated anyone else, lived a sheltered life under her parents' close watch. When she met Rex, she was immediately impressed with his spiritual testimony and his take-charge personality. She described him as being very... She described him as being very affectionate when they were dating and that she repeatedly had to stop his progressive displays of affection, you can imagine. He had been highly affectionate during dating, but the opposite in their marriage. Then skipping down to the next page, after seven years, when she finally gained enough courage to approach him on the topic, he exploded in such anger that she resolved that this was the way it would always be and turned her attention to the children, skipping down. When Selena would dare ask about his whereabouts, he would immediately accuse her of not trusting him and that he could come and go as he pleased without her badgering him about it and that she needed needed to understand that his job carried lots of pressure. He just needed some time alone, no other explanation until this past week. Skipping down again about a paragraph. Um, When it was mentioned that he would need to speak to his pastor, he quickly responded that he already had spoken to his pastor and the ruling elders, 
His wife added, they insisted we both get counseling, and that's why we're here. Rex's further comment was, the elders knew very little about repentance and how to restore someone, so he had instructed them on the matter. However, he seemed irritated that they would suggest that he produce further works to demonstrate repentance after all he had confessed. Over the next few weeks, their pastor and elders met with the counselors. These were very interesting and profitable meetings. Rex always knew about each meeting and was always very inquisitive as to what was discussed. Their general appraisal of Rex was interesting. This is the pastoral um, leadership. They all agreed uh, when the leading elder described Rex as arrogant at times and very much lacking in humility in general. (laughs) This was their observation made over several years of his membership in the church. He liked to be in charge of teaching events and was a very talented speaker and organizer. He was highly opinionated and could argue his point to defeat any opposition opinion. Skipping down. They met with him, meaning the counselors, met with him on several occasions trying to outline a way for him to serve in the church and support ministry. That was also with the pastors. Um, Assisting those responsible for cleaning restrooms or taking care of the grounds, trying to get him, you know, involved in serving others. To which he replied, I've repented and you're trying to punish me by making me jump through little hoops. I'm not about to play your silly games. Then we'll skip down to the last page, about the middle of the page, or the third page, I'm sorry, the third, well, one, two, three, yeah, third page, middle of the, middle of the page, it says, he even instructed the counselors that his problem was actually one of grief from the many losses he had to endure from the hands of his once friends, and that no one seemed to understand his pain. Don't you get it? I'm not the bad guy here. What about those others who've sinned against me? Um, Then skipping down, he did indeed allow his wife to come. He quit counseling, but he allowed his wife to come. Um, And when she would come, he would write letters for her to deliver to the counselor that basically were letters that described Um, how she was not responding in a God-honoring way to him by questioning him and his motives. Uh, Then, again, the last paragraph here in the description on the next page. As he is waiting for a job, that's the context of that, as he's waiting for a job, he spends hours each day on social media searching for and responding to any posting that might even by innuendo reference him. His counselors have warned him repeatedly about responding to such postings, but he insists that he's just defending his good reputation. His wife's working to pay the bills. Okay, so my question is this. There's, it's convoluted, right? I think that as you marked indications, you would say that, you know what, there's more than one. Th- yes. You got the Reader's Digest version? Oh, that's fine. You heard you heard excerpts. Okay. You got the Reader's Digest version. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I was skipping around a little bit. I was skipping around. I was skipping, but you didn't have what I was skipping either. So, so that's fine. That's fine. It is four pages, and I probably tried to do that. I just didn't get it in my teaching edition, you know. Um, blame it on the brain, whatever. Old age. I'm not anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to blame anything. We're talking about difficult, hard issues, okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, I know it's, it's kind of convoluted, and, and it was intended to be confusing simply because that's kind of the way life is. You get sometimes individuals that what appears to be is not. And that's the case here. Does he have a sexual addiction? 
Um, well, 15 years is a long time to, to be unfaithful in that particular direction. So we would say, mm, yeah, there's, there, there, there is something there. There is something there. But if he only, just hang on, if he only, if he never was unfaithful to his wife again, is he repentant? Yeah. Yeah, Caitlin? That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I would suggest that, that in this situation, it would not be for this reason, that his whole life is revolving around a complex heart, but it's not the sex that's really driving it. The sex is a symptom, a symptom of really what's going on. And that was the point that I wanted to make, Caitlin, is that what appears, it would be easy to say, you know what, this guy has a life-dominating sin. It's wrapped around his adultery, his particular style. And we would then help him to, to find perimeters and so on. The only thing is, is they continue to counsel him. Even in that particular area, he's throwing his hands up and saying, listen, I've done that. I've repented, but you're not, you're, not, you're not seeing that. Why are you continuing to punish me by wanting me to demonstrate repentance when I have? Uh, well, repentance, this humbling of ourselves before the Lord and being willing and submissive to him, right, is that an attitude that he's demonstrating? And I think we could say, mm, there's a problem here. It's not just the sexual immorality. Um, and that's the point that I want to make. That's the big thing. Um, now, uh, the curious thing, too, is, is why a week ago before he came for counseling, why he was suddenly driven? Was he convicted by the Lord? I don't know his heart, you know, so I'm not sure that I could really answer that. But I'm just wondering... It, if he was really convicted by the Holy Spirit, um, wow, it's, you know, stopped short of really where he needed to be convicted. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I'm also thinking, I don't know what else happened. And obviously, no one will probably ever know because he's, he's probably not going to be cooperative. At least that would be the, 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 the live direction at this point. He's not showing repentance. Okay, let's look at Jill. Jill is another one. This is a, a little, this one has a little more hope to it. Um, Jill is in her 40s. She's came for counseling. She was arrested two weeks ago for a DUI prior to the first meeting with her counselor. She's horrified that suddenly her secret lifestyle may be potentially become public to her church family. Do you have that? Okay. Jill is a very personable young lady. She always seems to have the right words to say in the ladies' Bible studies. Her counselors, having known her for the past four years, were stunned by it to hear her story. It did not fit her, uh, did not fit what they had perceived in the past. Surely this incident must have been a first ever experience for her. Uh, she seemed to always have it all together. Her husband was very quiet, marginally involved in the church, often worked odd days. They didn't know whether he was really working or something else was going on. Um, Jill explained that her alcohol incident had caused her to reevaluate her life. In her understanding, it is her alcohol that's the problem, and it has been getting worse. When asked to give her story, she began when she was just 14 years old. She explained that at that time she was going through some dark days, and one of her friends introduced her to alcohol from her friend's dad's supply. She said she didn't get drunk, but that it seemed to lighten the load and make her and made her feel more in charge and not so lonely. She seemed to remember very vividly her feeling of relief. It just really felt good, and I hadn't felt good in a long time. Later that evening, she felt very ashamed and vowed to never touch alcohol again. 
When asked about what was behind her description of dark days, she explained that she was a loner growing up. She spoke of her father teasing her about her legs and basic body structure. The kids in grade school always chose me last when dividing up teams, and I knew why. Why, the counselor asked, because I couldn't run fast and my eyes were so bad that I had to wear thick prescription glasses. She went on to say, and there were other things too, but was very reluctant to give any further details. Let's just say I hated every day at school. I hated the bus ride. No one really cared if I existed. Um, How were things with your parents? They never knew how I was treated at school or how much pain I was suffering. And I've never told anyone about some things. Obviously, one mind, one's mind wonders what things. It appears that when she was younger, she did at one time go to her parents, but her dad became angry with her and said she was just making up the story to get attention. Her mother's response did not seem to matter to Jill, and she, didn't, she couldn't really remember what her mother said. From that time, she decided not to tell anyone, not her parents, not her teachers, not her closest friends, about how she felt at times. No matter how much I tried, no, no one cared about me. She remembers crying until she could cry no more. She would cry at school, which caused her to be sent to the counselor's office. She determined not to cry in front of anyone again. So she only cried when she was completely by herself, and no one ever knew. When the pain of her life would build, she would find in very creative ways alcohol. Throughout her later teen years, she said no one knew about her occasional drinking. She planned carefully to cover her tracks so that no one would suspect. She would become totally intoxicated and at times stay out all night in her car, but she was always able to find an excuse. She attended church but didn't participate. When she met her husband uh, in early 20s, uh, when she met her husband, okay, he was, he was her knight in shining armor to rescue her from the life of pain. He talked to her, listened to her. She was opening up, becoming transparent with him to a point. In her mind, she could not share her greatest hurt. She trusted him to a point. She knew he wasn't perfect, but saw in him an escape from her old life. Perhaps marriage companionship was what she needed to push pain aside they married, she graduated from a tech, local technical school and moved some miles away, and uh, kind of making the longer story a little bit shorter so we can get to the, to the emphasis of, of what I want to say, is outwardly she, she protected herself until it became so obvious she couldn't any longer. Um, her husband found out when she was drunk, he had never seen anybody intoxicated before, so when she was vomiting and and so on. He took her to the emergency room where she was diagnosed as just intoxicated uh, alcohol. When she was arrested, of course, uh, that's that's when the you know the straw that broke the camel's back. There had had to be something done. Um, she was able to cover it up to that point. She could no longer cover it anymore. She made her husband promise that he would not tell. He kept his promise, but she kept turning back to the alcohol. Um, she was very visible in the church, very active in the church. She doesn't understand why she was unable to stop drinking. Last couple, three sentences. I know I'm doing wrong, and I honestly try not to do it. I don't know why I drink, but I really don't hurt anyone but myself. I have a wonderful husband, a good job, and a great church family. She explains through the tears, I may be too damaged at this point. I don't, I don't think I can go back to church. It hurts too much. There's a lot on the plate. There's a lot on the plate. So does she have a drinking problem? Yeah, she has a drinking problem. Okay. Does she have something else going on? Is this another one of those situations, right? I set you up. There's something else (laughs) motivating her. Honey, if we stopped the alcohol, if we could successfully do that, which that might be a place to start, But if we did that, we're still just scratching the surface, aren't we? We're replacing one one kind of a a dressing on the outside with another kind of dressing on the outside, but we're just putting on outer garments. We're not addressing the real hard issues. I think Jill is going to 
I wonder, you know, there's so many things there that, that we could pull out of it. I wonder um, you, you, what happened? What, what was it? It seemingly had something to do with the bus, right? You, you catch that, that she hated the bus ride. I don't know if that's significant or not. If you're 13 years old and you're a young lady, what? The kids might have made fun of her. There might have been an incident of some sort that embarrassed her. What kind of things would embarrass a 13-year-old? That's it. That's, that's it. And for her to internalize that and then to share it with her parents and have her dad react the way he did. Yeah. So it just further reinforces for her her sinful response to that, and then that, again, brings out a convoluted heart. It's just a complex kind of a thing. And, and to say that, you know, Jill, you're going to be fine. We'll, we'll make sure that you don't drink again is, is not going to help her long term. Uh, there needs to be some unraveling. Here goes. So let's try to think through some of the heart themes that you can begin to you can begin to think through in your own uh, what I like to do is I like to try to see the bigger picture you can't judge people's hearts but you can listen to how they reveal their hearts and that's what you want to be a good listener for what's motivating Rex what is it okay let me review what we've talked about earlier about the heart <clears throat> And get these so you can fill in the blanks here. Understanding the heart of man. Okay. The heart of man is that inner being against the immaterial part of man. We've talked about that uh, early on last night. It's the invisible. It's invisible to the physical eye. You can't see the heart of a person. I read recently where um, a Christian said, I can't believe I had those thoughts. Well, Where'd they come from? You know, the devil made me think them. Come on. You know, they came from your heart. They came from your heart. That's where they came from. We are desperately wicked. Yeah, yeah. We need to take the blinders off and see our hearts the way they really are. Uh, We think those things and we say those things even in our minds because the damage of sin. The Bible presents the heart as deep, hidden, and clever. It's clever. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Um, One's motives are difficult to fathom, and it takes a person of understanding to begin to unravel the heart. The Bible presents the heart as capable of dishonesty. The worthless person, a wicked man, walks with perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. Um, He sows discord. Wow. Rex. Mm. Okay. Maybe Bill. Ouch. That hurts more. Okay. We'll just pick on Rex, okay? It's easier to see sin in somebody else than it is to see in my own heart. Contrary to modern culture, the heart is not simply the romantic, you know, kind of a notion. We would just remind you of those things. Perhaps the chief characteristic of, of the heart is the most unsettling of all, and that is the heart is capable of deceit, self-deception. And it's commonplace for our hearts to assume that we're better than we really are. Uh, It's a self-imposed blindness of our own sin. A man's heart works to hide wicked intentions. In other words, when you simply ask me, why did you do that? Probably my first response is going to be a defense favorable to what I want you to think were my motives. You know, you, you follow me? Our hearts have a tendency to uh, flavor our, our responses as being better than they really are. Uh, we're comfortable with that self-determined ambition. Well-intentioned voices in our world are telling you to follow your heart. Boy, I tell you what, you, you hear that more all the time. Hallmark, I love the fact that there's not a lot of... of um, 
violence and there's not a lot of immorality, even though they picked up, you know, on the themes and so on. But I'll tell you what, it ranks from this follow your heart theme. It really, it really does. Okay. I watch Hallmark once in a while, uh, but I tell you, yeah, yeah. Follow your heart for, you know, the, the thing is to be genuine and authentic and being genuine and authentic is to follow your own heart as if your heart will never betray you. You, you see that and hear that? You got to follow your heart. Um, can you see how this self-thinking, self-defining thinking is fueling our culture of self-indulgence? I mean, you can see it in our culture all around us. Okay. And again, by way of review, can you trust your own heart? Keep your heart, for out of it are the issues of life, or spring the issues of life. Consider, again, just a reminder that the proud heart presents itself in favorable ways. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. That's Proverbs 16, Proverbs 21 says the same thing. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Since you can't trust to assess your own heart accurately, then you must seek to allow Scripture to assess your heart, to evaluate your heart. The penetrating, to let the penetrating truth of Scripture expose without arguing with it, but simply being submissive to what God is saying. The penetrating heart helps us to understand Matthew 5, 27, 28. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what that means when we look at the penetrating truth of Scripture is that the heart of the adulterer is really the same as the heart of the luster, the person who lusts. The only difference in the heart is one has acted out his fantasies and the other one has not acted outwardly on those fantasies, but the heart is the same. Um, how many people willingly admit that, you know, or see themselves in, in, that, in that particular light? So again, again, letting Scripture examine our hearts rather than our own hearts evaluating and we accepting that as the evaluation. I'm not as bad as Rex. You'd never catch me doing that kind of stuff. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. But when I sit as a counselor with any kind of arrogant attitude, do you see what's happening? I'm simply reflecting the same arrogance I'm seeing in front of me. And maybe be the disgust that I experience can be God and his grace saying, Bill, take a good look at your own heart and your own thoughts. Um, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or the height of his stature, because I refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at your intentions. He looks at your thoughts. He looks at, you know, I've, I've wondered, and I've said it to, to Marianne from time to time, um, because we have talked about these things. And um, would, how long would she live with me if she knew the intentions? Always, all the intentions and all the thoughts that I've ever had. You, you mean, you know, it's, God sees those. God sees those. And even though, even though we don't always think about them, in the light that God sees them, he does. Okay. The natural inclination is to judge one's heart with favor. I've said that four times. You ought to know it by now. Okay. Isn't it interesting in, in Romans 14 that um, 
we're talking about the weaker brother, that almost any discussion I've ever got into with a person about the weaker, the stronger brother, they're always the stronger brother. <laughs> you know, they never identify themselves as the weaker brother in faith. You know, another illustration of that would be is when a person's caught in a blatant sin, and uh, they will they will come up with, yeah, well, they, and then they blame somebody else for it. It's like, yeah, uh, I'm not so bad. Look at what they did, you know. Rex, Rex might be another one of those that here he is, and he is admitted to all these years of, of infidelity, and then he has the audacity to criticize whether it's his pastor or whether it's the counselor or his wife, in a sense, right? Blaming her because she's not sexually attractive. I don't, you know, whatever you're seeing there and hearing from Rex, you're seeing him justify his own heart. And um, he doesn't see it the way it, the way it is. Yeah. The truth of God's standard, not, not our standard, is the standard by which we should see ourselves and see others. The person who trusts the person who trusts his own heart assumes that he knows his own heart. How well do you know your own heart? Would you would you would you turn over your entire savings to a person that you didn't know? <laughs> And that you could not trust? You know, you think about it. Would you eat food and drink from a source that you could not trust? Say, why would we, in the light of Scripture, think that we could trust our own hearts with the weightiest decisions in life? And yet people do. And yet people do. That's the blindness of sin. Rex is blinded by his own sin. So is Jill at this point. And Bill, if you're not careful as a counselor, you're going to think about them and not think about your own heart. So you need to, need to get a mirror here and look. Consider that Israel, uh, God took Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy 8 would tell us why he did that. It says, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way through these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. Now, my simple question is this. Did he not know? And the answer is, listen, God knew what was in their hearts. It was for them to know what was in their hearts. That's why they were tested and tried for 40 years. Self-deception. And understanding one's heart becomes, it becomes settled and convinced of this attitude. And it's the same attitude that that, uh, Israel demonstrated. Humility is more a progression than it is a state that you reach. It's continuing to be aware of how much we need Christ and how much we um, need to grow and change, in our, even in our own lives. Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. <laughs> Why is he testing it? To see what faith we have? No, it's for us to see our own hearts. He already knows. He already knows. Okay. So in thinking about how we're going to help Rex and how we're going to help Jill, do you understand that there's some way, somehow, we're going to have to help them understand that trusting their own heart is not, is not the direction they need to be moving, that there's something more fundamental that they need to be understanding. How might God use trials to reveal the heart? Well, that's James 1, verses 2 and 3. Uh, that would be pressured circumstances. So how might God build trust in himself in you? If you're struggling and your faith is weak in trusting him in difficult circumstances, 
what would you expect a good God to do? Give you opportunities to practice and see how much you need him. That would, that would be it. So why do we see these trials? And I'm preaching to myself, okay. Why do we see these trials as being intrusions into our life rather than opportunities? That, again, is the deceitfulness of our own hearts. It's difficult. Okay. He's not aware of wrongdoing or unconfessed sin. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, um, he says, I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. I don't know of anything that I haven't been willing to deal with, but doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Um, he's not being, he's, he's understanding that, you know, there is this continuing uh, growth. And, and so we still have room to grow. So he's rightfully distrusting his own heart. He's saying, I don't see it. Doesn't mean it's not there. I just don't trust my own heart. I'll let God judge it. And so it is. Every believer battles desires within the heart. And God forgives us when we're saved. Judicially, positionally, we're forgiven. We live in grace and mercy and so on. Then there's paternal relationship in which we are adopted into God's family and now we become his children and he chastens us because he loves us as children and as he loves us he disciplines or structures us and we need continually to live a life of repentance uh, in seeing our sin when we do I don't mean to 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 just continually look for sin in our lives but when we become aware of it and we need to be aware of it, allow the Word of God to search our hearts, then we need to, need to be willing to change our belief about it, accept our responsibility, and seek to intentionally change. Okay, now, let's look at discovering heart idols. What are we going to do? Um, the questions that you would, you would simply, I think you simply should have memorized, would be those questions like, what? Am I wanting so much that I'm willing to sin to get? What am I wanting so much that I'm willing to sin if I don't get it? What am I wanting? What do I really desire? Uh, and again, it might not be that what you're desiring is sinful, remember, but if we wrap our hearts around it and we want it so much that we're willing to sin to get it or sin when we don't get it, again, that's become an idol. And those idols take various themes in our life. Um, the idols of my heart, again, there may be times in your life when different things seem to capture your heart. <laughs> You're willing to sin to get them or sin when you don't get them. Uh, as God purifies you, all the idols wrap around pride. So if you're thinking, well, Rex's problem is pride, Jill's problem is pride, you would say, yeah, it's that self-focus. That's the, that's the bottom line to this. It is reflected in a lack of gratitude for what God's done, whatever. We could describe it in many different ways. But basically, you could say, if I had to describe it in one word, it'd be pride. How does that pride look in Rex's life? That pride looks different than it does in Jill's. It just, it's worked out. The face of it appears to be different, even though the heart behind it, there's a basic issue, and that is, okay, they're, they're wanting something that they're not getting, uh, and they're willing to sin when they don't get it. Is the person looking to something, someone, to provide comfort for them instead of turning to Christ and accepting his promises and trusting him? So to gain relief, do I go to other things? Do I move to other things? I think I mentioned in your handout, Pallison's article, X-ray questions. I documented that for you. You can find it. I think that's an excellent article. You ought to you ought, to, you ought to get it. He asks a bunch of questions that are heart questions. I think Pastor Kevin calls them sometimes Velcro questions. 
They're questions that when you ask them and you drag them across your heart, it kind of picks up some stuff and you can begin to understand a little more about what's driving you um, and so on. Okay, so what I want to do, what I want to do in, in just the remaining 10 minutes is quickly run through some themes. Those are some good questions to ask, the broad categories, of course. One would be, for example, and by the way, by the way, let me say this to start with. I'm not, I'm not asking you to memorize a bunch of categories so that your task will be to put counselees in categories, in boxes, People just don't fit in little boxes. Um, but they can help you in understanding some of the themes that may help you in how to direct your counseling initially so that you can get to, get to some of these heart issues and heart struggles um, a little more easily. So the first one would be, well, the first one's flattery, uh, applause, praise, praise. yeah. It's excessive, insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. A flattering compliment or speech, excessive, insincere praise to play upon the vanity or susceptibilities of um, a quest for praise or personal approval. All of us like to be praised. All of us like to be respected. All of us like to be adored. Okay? But when you push that to a point where you're willing to sin when you don't get it, follow me, or sin to get it, flattery is a way of trying to get praise or favor. Uh, the danger, of course, would be the receptive heart to flattery. And uh, flattery is a form of favoritism, you know, those kind of things. I think I mentioned some of this in there just in case I didn't have time to, to develop it. But do you see how... Do you see how, in a sense, this could be? And again, I'm, I'm looking at potential motives for uh, heart motives for Rex just by way of illustrating it. But can you see a little bit of that perhaps in his behaviors, the wanting the praise? He's a take-charge person. What kind of position does he want in the church? Oh, he wants a position where people see him and applaud, you know, praise him. Uh, he doesn't like being corrected. Um, that's, that's, you're, you're trashing his idol when you, when you do that or belittle him. I'm not cleaning toilets. You know, I'm not sweeping the floor. Whatever the trivial task, I don't know what all that the uh, pastor was wanting him to do, but he wasn't about to have that. Um, could that be part of it? Uh, second would be power or control. And again, you can have seduction, people who are thrilled when they're able to deceive someone and control that person by seducing them, whether it's sexually or whether it's in some other fashion of gaining some kind of power over them. But they seem to get special enjoyment out of controlling people. Isn't it interesting that Rex was all over her during dating, but then in their marriage, he was hands-off? Isn't that interesting? I don't know particularly what drives it, but could it be, could it be that he lost the thrill of the hunt? You know, for him, the thrill of it, the, the joy, the real thing was getting what he wanted or controlled. Um, then, of course, you have the opposite of that in which a person might want to be controlled or dominated as a way of, of responding. So the heart, is, the heart can be very convoluted. Um, Self-reward. Self-reward would be another one. Um, Self-reward for extra, extra work. David in the Old Testament, I don't know his heart motives, but he was relaxing when kings, the time for kings to go to war, <laughs> he's relaxing. Did he think, and maybe others encouraged him, you just need a rest, man. You just need to take a vacation. You know, I deserve it. I'm pretty cool. I deserve it. Did that set him up? Did that set him up? This desire for self-reward? Um, I have had individuals who have, uh, 
who have defended their sinful behavior by saying that they work hard in ministry, and in working hard in ministry, they deserve some reward. And of course, even if the reward was sinful, they seem to um, gloss over that. So, Rex, could that be part of his hard struggle? Comfort. I wonder if Jill, in wanting some peace from the heartache, if just finding some kind of comfort is a part of, of her struggle, that she wants this comfort, this, this refuge, you know. She wants the memories to be different. And if she went to a secular counselor, they might even have her in some kind of healing of memory in trying to help her so that she would find comfort. Yeah, nothing sinful about comfort, right? It's when you wrap your heart around it and your sin to get it or sin when you don't get it, you know. So alcohol obviously would not be a godly way of turning to find comfort. Anger would be another one. Anger would be another one. Um, anger, uh, and again, I've given you these definitions, so I'm not going to read all of them, but to envy or to be jealous finds itself into anger. <clears throat> and you can certainly see it in Rex in that he is very angry because, again, his idol, the thing that he really wants, is being trashed. Uh, you can't stand that. Um, is Jill jealous or envious of other people who seem to be moving through life just fine, but not for her? Um, Self-pity. Self-pity would be another one. Excessive self-absorbed unhappiness over one's troubles. Pity for self, especially self-indulgent attitude. It could be tied to, to self-reward. It could be tied to comfort. Those kind, of, those kind of things. Fear would be another one. Discontentment would be another one. Covetousness. Can you write fast? You got them? They're in there. I did not leave those blank. Why did I do that? That was for such a time as this. I thought of you ahead of time. Okay. Um, I, I thought of the last one, 12 and 13, but I thought of Joe when I thought of love. You know, do you suppose this little gal when she was 13 just wanted to be loved? You just wanted somebody to hug her and, and tell her, you know, it's okay. Went to dad. That didn't happen. She didn't care what mom thought. There probably is a story behind that. I don't know what it is. Might be important. Might not be. Respect. Oh, boy, Rex. Yeah, okay. All right. So in two minutes, here's the, here's the, the wrap-up. And that is, how would we help them? First of all, we want to help the counselee to identify heart motivations in other words, we want to help them begin to think through their own heart motivations. And that would be asking them questions. When I'm tempted to sin, what am I wanting? What am I wanting to happen? How do they respond to pressures? How do they respond to trials? What do I want? Asking them those questions uh, from Paulison's article. What past experiences have contributed to your present struggle? In other words, Jill, what things, and the counselor has done a pretty good job to this point of getting the bigger picture. He just hasn't built enough involvement yet for Jill to say really what happened, right? Um, he may get there. And then I'm thinking, describe your theme, and that is, is there a look? Is there a look? For me, when I walk away from Rex, I see control. I see control. When I walk away from Jill, I see, I see comfort. I see her wanting to heal whatever it is that happened to her. She wants some relief. That would be the kind of thing. So that's going to determine the approach that I have toward both of them in counseling. Does that, does that make sense? Have I lost you? Okay. Setting up a plan, short-term plan is going to be the behavioral. Okay, we got to make sure that there's no alcohol in the house for Jill. Rex isn't cooperating anyway, so he's, he's, you know, 
but at least we got Jill as a counselee for the time being. So we'll want to set up some perimeters. If it were Rex, we would set up some perimeters to make sure that it wasn't easy for him to fall back into the old patterns and that kind of a thing. That's behavioral. Now, long term, we have to go after the heart. Okay. Long term will be basic things. This is where counseling, you have convoluted circumstances. Listen, keep it simple. People trip over their purpose in life. Rex, why are you why are you alive? And that's to honor God, bring him glory. How does that match what you're doing? You see, I want to teach purpose of life. Jill, um, what are you living for? I want, as time goes, it's not going to be the first session, perhaps. I want to teach God's purpose of trials. Why does God allow pressures in a person's life? I want both of them to understand those concepts. I want them to understand heart issues, how the heart drives. I like the Y chart. I use it almost all the time. That describes the heart, and the heart treasures what they value, drives their behavior and their decision. So uh, a good book on this and the themes and so on, Passions of the Heart by John Street. There's another one, and I, for the life of me, I did not write it down, um, but it also describes. Now, The Passion of the Heart is written about people who are addicted to pornography big time. Okay, so it's not a book that you pick up and say, oh, this is just idols. But he describes themes. He describes heart idol themes. And those descriptions can be very helpful. Okay. Yes. 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 And and really how that looks in actually playing out, I would be probably describing the Y chart from the first session. So I'm beginning to introduce them, but I'm not expecting that they really understand all of the dynamics. I'm going to have to keep singing that song for for a few weeks. But yeah, generally speaking, I need to set some short-term things, which are the immediate behavior, and then as I am helping them get to the heart issues, um, it's along the way. So it's kind of parallel, you know, rather than if I finish this one, I'll start this, you know, to just, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right, all right. You are dismissed, and you have a break until... Through 10. Oh, man, get after it. Two or five, yeah. We, uh, We've never stopped or started. Oh. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, here's, here's the way, yeah, here's the way you have to do that, is my heart motivation, as much as I can trust my own heart, I'm not trying to get you to applause me. Correct. I'm trying to encourage you. Correct. Okay. okay. So when it's flowing that way, you know, you're, you're st there are some people who just say, you know what? If, if, if I don't like the dress, I tell them. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know how loving that is. No, it's not. When you're trying to encourage her. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So the flattering part would be when I walk away and they don't, they don't respond, am I crushed? See? Oh, okay. and if that were the case, yeah. then I would say, ah, ha, ha, you were fishing for a compliment. Gotcha. Okay. You know. I see. 
But if I walk away and I see them, see them smile, then I say, that makes me feel so good okay. because at least I encourage them. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. That's the answer to that. Okay, fine. No, good. I was just curious. And then <laughs> it's crazy because like, I'm one of those things that just didn't get that. Like, as I'm looking through that, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, well, everybody's thinking about this. Because in some of those, like, discouragement or sure. self-pity. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sitting there and I'm like, so yes. anyway, so 